Welcome to the teaching ministry at Magnolia's First. We hope the next few minutes will help you take your next steps on your faith journey. And we would love to help you take those next steps. Just head over to m1bc.org and fill out the connect form and a pastor will get in touch with you very soon. Or you can text us at 281-343-3033. Well, good morning, church family. Good to see you people. Last week, I was able to uh, take the opportunity, since I was uh, already scheduled to be gone to Israel, to uh, go visit my own church family. So after I introduced myself to most of them, (laughs) it was good to be with them. But I I am so grateful that you had the opportunity to meet my friend Calvin Pearson, and, and he's just a great man of God, wonderful, wonderful preacher. But he loves Jesus, and he loves the people who love Jesus. And so I just enjoy always getting to hear him. And so last week I tuned in for both services and listened to it twice, and I hope it took. And so I just trust that, that you received well what God wanted you to have. This morning we are continuing to talk about who you are in Christ, in particular, your identity. We have been talking about lessons from a fisherman out of the book of 1 Peter. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 12. And as we do that, I just want to ask you a question. If people were to ask you to tell them who you are, what would you say? Now, some of you, some of you would start with what you do for a living. You would say, well, I'm a farmer, or I'm this, or I'm that. Some of you may start with, well, this is the role I have in life. I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a grandparent, or, or whatever that might be. There would be different identities. I wonder how many of us might describe ourselves by our age, the correct one. You know, one of the things I noticed about my mother-in-law that I found interesting, about the time she hit 85, she began to round up. And so when she was 85, she would say, I'm almost 86. And about the time she hit 88, she began to say, I'm close to 90. And she kept doing that all the way until the time she hit 100. And then she quit rounding. Then it was like, I'm 100 plus 1. I'm 100 plus 2. Would you describe yourself by your age? I wonder how many people's identity, though, is paused at a particular event or moment in time. Uh, Perhaps a middle school or junior high moment for some of you, a high school victory. And you probably have seen people that, that live as if the only time their life had any value was high school. They're still wearing a letter jacket. (laughs) Or maybe some other life placeholder. Matter of fact, I was thinking about that because we just moved, and because we moved, you come across stuff. So I came across something that my mother released to me almost two decades ago because she didn't have room for it anymore, and she knew that I must just desperately want this. And so this is what she gave me. Yeah, that is me at seven years old. This hung in my house or her house as long as I can remember until she began to move a few years ago. Now, look at that face at seven, and that face says to you, God has told me I'm to be a minister. 
At that moment, you're saying, if you would just brush your teeth, quit hitting your brother, and clean your room, I'd be impressed. And I will tell you, when I used to bring girls over to the house, this did not help me <laughs> at all. And some of us may find ourselves a little bit stuck in time. Matter of fact, I'd like to ask you, if you could go have a conversation with a younger you, what would you tell them? Would you give them some advice about some things to be aware of? Would you tell them that there's some mistakes that they could avoid? Would you say, I know that she's your mother, but she's right. Just pay attention. I wonder if we might say, hey, listen, there are some chances that you ought to take. There are some things that you need to, to embrace. But you know, when I think about myself, the one thing I would really like to have been able to say to that seven-year-old and the 17-year-old is, Whatever you do, make sure that you listen more to what God says about you than what people do. Listen more to what God's Word says is true about you than to the voice that's in your head. Because the enemy wants to knock you down, but God is seeking to build you up. And we need to be careful about whose voice we listen to when we think about our identity and who we really are. So I just want to ask you, where is your identity from? Is your identity most closely found in who you think you are? Or is it more based on what God says about you? Because in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be reading there from our text about Peter saying to these Christians and saying to us thousands of years later, you need to remember who Jesus says you are. Make that the most real. So as we begin in that chapter, let's pray together and ask God's revelation to our heart. Father, we pray that as we are in your word, that your word would fall deeply within our hearts, that in the soul of our lives, our spirit would listen to your word and would embrace what you have to say to us. Through the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. I want to remind you that in 1 Peter, we've already been talking about the fact that the Bible says that you and I, through Christ, have been born again into a living hope. And that because of that, we have been called to now live lives that are holy. So as we go into chapter 2, it starts with a word. Because remember, when this letter was written, there were no chapters. It was just a letter. And so chapter 1 and chapter 2 are actually meant to be together. So chapter 2 begins with this. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And he talks about who we should pursue or what we should pursue. And he begins by saying, this is what I want you to let go of. This is what I want you to not have part of your life. And he lists them. He says, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. 
And he says, literally, I want you to put it away. And the picture that you have here is of a room that is cluttered that you can barely walk through. And he says, make a path. Clear this out. Pick it up and put it away. What is he saying, put away? He says, well, I want you to put away malice. You know, this, this, this sense of spite or wickedness. Literally, you could translate the Greek like this. Naughtiness of thought. Don't have naughty thoughts. He also says, put away deceit. In other words, we're to be true in the way that we work with each other. We're to be true in our motivations with each other. We're not to be someone that has ulterior motives, but rather we're to walk in truth. Put away deceit and put away hypocrisy. Anything that makes you two-faced, where you live one way, but actually in your heart, you're a different way. Where you say what should be said, but you live what you say is wrong. Put away hypocrisy. Also, put away envy. Covet what others can do, what others have, what others are given the opportunity for. You know, that is one of the great pitfalls that can happen to us when we get way too engaged in social media. Because we start looking at other people's lives and we start looking at their perfect family or their perfect vacation. And it appears with some people, their perfect food. I have never quite understood people posting, this is what I'm eating now. When I've got a friend that posts to me every single plate of barbecue he gets. And he's a cardiac patient. I want to say, did you share that with your doctor? And now, you can have a camera that even if you take a bad picture, you can hit a couple of buttons, and all of a sudden, the kid that's not smiling, smiling. In other words, it's not only a made-up pose, it's now made-up people. We have to be careful that we don't envy the opportunity or the life of someone else. God has given you the life he wants to give you. But are you living the life he's provided to you? But not only that, he says, be careful with slander, tearing down others. In other words, murdering their reputation. And that's what slander is. But I want you to know that this word here about put away doesn't mean just pick it up. It also means to discard it. Because he doesn't want you to simply pick up the room and shove it all in the closet. Have you ever gone to somebody's house and you're walking around, everything is pristine, and you're about to touch a door and you hear this little warning, don't open that door. Because if you do, it's all coming tumbling out. And that's what happens with us. If we're not careful, what we do is we'll say, okay, I'll put away malice, I'll put away deceit, I'll put away slander, I'll put these things away, but I am storing them up from when they'll be handy. I'm putting them on the shelf in my closet or in the drawer so that when the appropriate time comes, I can pull it out and let it loose. The Bible says to us, don't put it away for a future time. Put it in the trash and discard it so it just goes away. That's what you are to put away. So what do we embrace? And he gives us one simple thought, and that is embrace the pure spiritual milk 
the pure spiritual milk of the gospel. Now, this is not the same reference that's given in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, when Paul is, is uh, 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 basically chastising or correcting the Corinthian church where he says this, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. He's not talking about that kind of infancy. What he's talking about is you need to suckle on the purity of what Jesus has done for you. You need to hunger at the depth of your soul for you to have time with him. And he uses this word picture very purposely about a newborn infant because anyone that's ever brought a baby home learned very quickly they're not quiet. And when they cry, they're saying, I need something. I need food. I need you. I need a change. Or I just need something because I don't know what it is yet, but I need it. And he says, I want you to hunger for the gospel, to hunger for the presence of Jesus, to cry out for it, to seek it, to demand it in a sense, because just like a newborn baby, you need desperately to connect with him that way. And you know, I have watched so many people that have come to Christ, that have gotten excited about the Lord, and they're pouring themselves into the Word, and they're letting the Word of God pour into them, and they are growing, and they are moving forward. And then they start learning that it's possible to coast and kind of look like a good church member. I'll just show up. I'll attend. I'll volunteer. And you can get so busy just doing stuff that you can miss the gospel heart. I just want to ask you, are you passionate about knowing Jesus? Are you hungry to spend time with him? Are you longing to spend time with him? When I was engaged to my wife, we lived in two different cities. And so at times I would have to go in and, and uh, drive down to Dallas to see her. And when I did that, I was always dependent upon the uh, kindness of others to have a place to stay. Because obviously I'm not staying with her and her, her roommate. And so she would help me find different places on occasion. Didn't happen a lot, but on occasion, the people who made the promise I could stay at their home would fall through. And it would be Friday night at midnight, and I'm realizing there's nobody home. And so I slept in my car. Now, I didn't wake up the next morning and say, I just want you to know I love you so much, I slept in my car to see you. Because that wouldn't have blessed her. But I tell you, I didn't care if I was sleeping in my car, because the next day I got to see her. I want to ask you, are you at the place where your soul longs for him in such a way that you would say, I don't care how inconvenient it is. I don't care what gets in the way. I'm spending time with Jesus. That's how he says that we're to live, to pursue him.
to crave him, to cry out for him, to know him. So what does the Bible have to say to us about who God says we are? Well, look at verse 4. Because you need to know this. It's based on who Jesus is and what Jesus did for you. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And it all begins with this on who you are. You are who you are through Christ because of what Christ did for you. The Bible says that Jesus is the cornerstone, the living stone. Now, you may remember a few months ago when we were in our doctoral series that we talked about in understanding who Jesus is as the cornerstone, that he literally is that stone by which all the other stones are laid. He is that which causes it, the building to be true and to be plumb, to be square, and to be able to withstand the pressures of the forces that come against it. Jesus is our cornerstone. But the Bible says there will be some people that instead of it being a cornerstone or a living stone, he'll be a tripping stone. And they will trip over him and not accept him as Savior because they can't see him that way. They don't receive him that way. But the Bible says that Jesus is our cornerstone. And Peter goes back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 28, 16, where he quotes, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. The Bible says this stone is precious to God, that Jesus is precious. And what Jesus did for you and I is precious to God. And it is it is, it is held close and loved deeply. And the Bible says not only is Jesus the living stone, the Bible says in a similar way or different way, we are like him as living stones built up as a spiritual house. We're not the cornerstone, but because of what the cornerstone has done for us, we are now living stones beside him that are built together into a, a spiritual house. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when it talks about the different parts of the body and how God works spiritual gifts together. It says, for the body does not consist of one member but many. And then he goes on and says, is everybody a foot? Is everybody a hand? Is everybody an eyeball? No, we have different parts. We have different purposes. But in verse 18 it says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If we were all a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. And perhaps you've heard the illustration of, of, of the body that what would you think if you came to church, you looked down the aisle, and there's this giant eye rolling down the aisle. And people said, well, in this church, we only accept one kind of spiritual gift. 
The Bible says we need diversity. The Bible says we need the gifts. We need you. We need a great differences among us so that the body is complete. The picture that we're given is this. We are saved individually, but we are corporately connected. I want you to hear that God didn't save you through Christ for you to go alone. He called you to be part of a church family. He called you to be part of the bigger body of Christ. That is his intention for you. And because of that, every person that knows Christ, and just like these two that were baptized, everyone that knows Christ as Savior and Lord has a deep value to God and has a role to play, and has a place in God's family. When someone says, I don't know that, if I, that I fit, my first thought is, are we fitting you in the right place? Because you do have a place to be, and this is a value. And you need to know something. If you're not here, if you're not part of the body of Christ, you're not easily replaced. If God has called you to be part of this church family, and he has placed you in this church family. Regardless of circumstance or situation, I will tell you, this is where you're to be. And if you're not here, we have a gap. It's kind of like if you were to drive up to a church, and there was a brick church, and you're looking at this brick structure, and there's one brick that's been pulled out. You know the brick, you know what you're going to see every time you drive up? That gap. And it's like, it all looks good, but what's that? What's that about? You need to know that if the Lord has called you to this church family and he has placed you into this church family, that you matter, that you have a role, and that you have a deep value. And it could be that the role that you had in your 20s is different than the role that you have in your 40s or your 60s or your 80s or your 100s. But your value hasn't changed. And the need that the body has for you has not changed either. He says literally, you are a holy priesthood, that you offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. And perhaps you've wondered, well, what sacrifices am I offering? What exactly is that about? Well, for instance, in Psalms 116, it says that we bring the sacrifice of praise. And just a few moments ago when you were singing, you're offering a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, for some of you, you might say, well, that sounds like a sweet sacrifice. Others say, I think he just heard the sound of the kill. But the reality is, that every time you praise God, it is an uplift to heaven. Amen. And it's a spiritual sacrifice before the Lord. The Bible says in Romans 12 that our bodies, that our lives, that we live today are to be lived as a living sacrifice before the Lord so that as we walk through this earth, that we walk not in our own strength but in His, proclaiming His glory, demonstrating His truth as a living sacrifice to this world, saying, I belong to Jesus, and you can too. In Revelation chapter 5, you may recall there's a point where it talks about bowls of incense falling down before the Lord. And it says that those bowls of incense that waft up, that, that fill that heavenly place with the sweet aroma are, is literally 
the prayers of the saints. Every single time you pray, you're filling that bowl. Some of you have wondered if your prayers have been heard. They're not just heard, they're kept. You may be wondering, is my prayer life one that God would be honored by? I will tell you, even in a struggling prayer, it is kept holy before the Lord. There's so many different ways that you can sacrifice. But I just want to mention a few things before you, and that is the descriptors of who a believer is. This is the descriptor of who you are when you know Jesus as your Savior. Verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. He gives four descriptors there. Let me just talk very quickly about these four. The first is he says, you're a chosen race. Now, I want you to hear something. Please hear this. The church of Jesus Christ has no place for racism. Because everybody that walks the face of this earth regardless of the amount of melatonin in their skin, is created in the image of God. And not only that, the Bible says that when you and I accept Jesus, we now are a new race. And while it may be made up of different flavors, it's all one race. His kids. And I'm going to tell you, God only has a preference for his kids not between his kids. And so the idea that there could be somehow this false division that creeps in so much within our culture is not found in Scripture. We are one people through Jesus, a chosen race. Not only that, the Bible says you're a royal priesthood. Now, remember before, he said you're a holy priesthood. Now he's saying you're a royal priesthood. Well, what is he saying about that? He's saying that in your life, that you are made holy by Jesus, that you have now been grafted into the family of God as his children. And in 1 John 3, 2, as well as in Galatians 3, it speaks of this fact that you are now sons and daughters of God, joint heirs with Jesus. When you accepted Jesus, you were made holy by God. And you were made royal by God. Now, don't start thinking that means that somehow there's a little throne waiting for you. There is a throne, but we're going to be on our face worshiping the one who sits in it. But you need to know you are sons and daughters of God, and God has called you to live that way. The Bible says you're a holy nation that you were made holy by Christ's sacrifice for us and the covering of his shed blood. In Hebrews 10.10 10 it says, and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then in 1 Peter, remember chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 we read, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy and all your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We are one race, we are a holy and royal priesthood, and we are a holy nation so that as believers we're to walk this earth in such a way that people look at our lives and say, you don't live like other people. 
And I'm not talking about keeping rules. I'm talking about living truthfully, living in love. By our first response being a loving response, not a harsh response. But for me, it'd be driving down the highway and saying, oh, please cut me off again. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I just want to wave at you and say thank you. We all have our places of growth. But can people tell by our conduct who we belong to? One other thing, a people of his possession. Now, this is important because remember, the word that's used here is used earlier, and that is, that is precious to him. That literally, we are his special treasure. I want you to hear something that's really important. You go all the way through this Bible. You look everywhere you can look. You will never find one place, one place where the Bible says that Jesus regrets dying for you on the cross. You're not going to find one place where God says that he grieves that he provided you salvation. Again and again, he glorifies his son and he points to his bride and says you bring glory to my son you're precious to God you're a treasure to God and you know it could be this past week you had somebody that treated you less than treasurable and maybe once in a while you need to look at somebody and say something like you know I know you're not happy with me but Jesus is thrilled Of course, you better really be in the right spot when you say that. <laughs> but I want you to know how much God values you, how much he loves you, and that he saved you on purpose. He saved you on purpose because he finds such great worth in who you are. So what's our response and purpose to God's grace, it says in verse 9b, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what's my purpose? My purpose is living a way that I bring praise and glory to God. That I live in such a way that when people know me, they go, wow, that's what a Christian is like. That when people work alongside us, when they live next to us, that they see the hope of what could happen if they gave their heart to Jesus. That's God's desire for you. He gives a final reminder for this journey in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may, see, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He literally says to them, listen, I want you to live in such a way that even if people speak ill of you in spite of your good deeds, in spite of your good living, in spite of your best intentions, that when the day of judgment comes, 
they're going to have to confess, yes, they lived honorably. Yes, they glorified Jesus. And I spoke ill of them on earth, but I have to speak the truth about them here in the presence of God. So where are you today? I thought about that as I was praying and driving over here. I was thinking about how many different places we come from and, and how some of us are at different places in our journey. And I just want to ask you, if you're at that place where you're saying, I don't even know Jesus. I, I'm, I'm just here trying to learn about Jesus. And I, I don't have any understanding of what happened in that baptism and what that's about. And you're just at that first step. We would love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christ follower. But I'm really impressed that today that I really need to speak to, a, to someone else in this group. Some of you have believed the lie of the enemy about who you are and your worth. Some of you have believed the lie of someone else's voice. And there was somebody in your past that said something about you. And you have let that voice be your ruler. Maybe there was a relationship that was a critical relationship and they didn't see you as valuable and they didn't treat you as valuable and you have lived your life under that shadow. I want you to hear today, you can walk out of that shadow and walk into his glorious light. You do not have to be ruled by the lies of others, the lies of the enemy, or the lies you have told yourself. You, if you know Jesus, you are precious to him. You are a chosen people. You are a holy and royal priesthood. You, you were worth dying for. That's how much he loves you. Will you bow your heads with me? As our heads are bowed, I am not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything like that. But as your heads are bowed, I just want to ask you in your heart, do you believe what Jesus says about you? Do you believe what God's Word says about you? Have you embraced the truth of what Jesus has said about you? And if you haven't, if, if you have struggled, if you are at that place where you just can't understand how you could be worth loving in that way, or if you've chosen to listen to voices that they're not his voice, then I want to pray with you. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would minister life to my brother, to my sister, to those that are in this room, Lord, that they became believers. But there's that, that question in their heart. There's a doubt in their heart that they're worthy. And Father, that's easy for us to feel because we all know about our own sin and we all know about our own struggles. But Father, your word is clear to us that if we confess our sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive our sin, to cleanse us from all righteousness, that you will draw us to you. So Father, I pray that 
that we could take a step, a new day before us where we decide we're going to pay more attention to what you have to say about us than what the world says about us. That we would listen to your voice. That we would hunger for you like a newborn infant hungers after the purity of the gospel. That we would feed deeply on Jesus. Give us that heart today, Lord. Give it to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.